Cinderella, Sunny Stella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. And this is Blix. John's not with us this week, so it's just the two of us. Thank you again for joining us for the Fringeworthy Podcast. This week, we're talking about how big is big. Otto, what do you think when you think of big? All right, so we're talking about scale? Yes, we're talking about scale, as in how big is that thing? Well, the original big, when it comes to mind, are things like uh, the Empire State Building. Uh huh. Or if you want to talk about, you know, a state, Texas is a is a big state. Russia is a big country. Jupiter is a big planet. I guess it all depends on on, on what we're talking about. Right, because if you compare Jupiter to the Empire State Building, you wouldn't think that the Empire State Building was big at all. No, no, no. You would think it was um, minuscule. Yeah. A lot of the times they'll in these astronomical pictures, they'll say, okay, here's the Earth in front of Jupiter, and it's this little tiny marble in front of something the size of, I don't know, a uh, basketball. You know, the, pretty well, much. No, no, much bigger than that. Uh, uh, let's say a, a giant a weather balloon, you know? <laughs> one of those big balloons you see uh, on the beach. You know, it's yeah. about the size of a person, and then you got this marble-sized thing, and that's the Earth. So when we talk about scale and how big is big, a lot of times it's really difficult for your players, speaking to the GMs, to understand how big is this thing that you are talking about, what is going to matter as far as having to deal with it. You can see yourself fighting a, a giant lizard, right? But when you talk about Godzilla... He's 300 foot tall. Right. You, you're running from Godzilla. I mean, tanks fire at Godzilla, and, and Godzilla just shrugs it off and keeps on going. Okay, even if he wasn't in essentially invulnerable, he's just so big that you have to use totally different tactics when you're dealing with it. That's a funny point because when I was a kid, when I thought of dinosaurs, you know, I thought of a T-Rex, I thought of, you know, something the size of Godzilla. I thought that dinosaurs were... Not to get it wrong, dinosaurs are humongous. Some of them. Some of them. <laughs> but Godzilla is bigger than, I mean, he is unbelievably bigger than any dinosaur that ever lived. And it's just its just amazing, you know, when you, when you look at it, you know, I, I think about it now and I'm like, wow, you know, dinosaurs aren't nearly as big as I thought they were. But, but they're still ungodly big. For example, the other day I was looking at these terror birds online and it said, you know, they could be anywhere from three feet to 10 feet tall. I'm thinking, well, 10 feet tall is not that big, really. But then I was sitting in my living room, and my, my ceiling is roughly about 10 feet tall. So if you live in an average home with an average size ceiling, imagine a creature whose head would be resting against your ceiling. 
and imagine just how big and terrifying that thing would be if it came at you. Just imagine what it would take to stop him. Any physical force that you personally could put against him, he'd just brush away. Right. Having a child, having a son, I got very used to the fact that no matter what my son did, I could physically overpower him. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we enforced our what we wanted him to do simply by making him do it. When he was small, it was almost effortless. So right. now, of course, when he's bigger than I am and he's 13 years old, and he's not on the same scale he was before. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, if you want to think about, you know, a guy who's – say, for example, you're going up against a giant-sized man, say a guy who's 9 or 10 feet tall – and you want to get an idea of what it would be like to go up against somebody like that, they're not just four foot taller than a six foot man. You're talking about something because their, their mass increases, their width increases. You're thinking about something that would be comparable to a parent versus a small child. Right. He's eight times your weight. Right. And that's, exa- a, that, that's pretty much exactly what it would be like for your six-year-old son going up against you. Yeah. He and weighs a ton compared right. to you. Right. So that's what you would be facing against a, a normal, real, like like a, a realistic 10-foot-tall man. Right. And you can understand now why uh, the Israelites were terrified of this man, because not only was he that big, but when he took a sword that was sized for him and raised it up and swung it, I mean, it was literally just this gigantic arc of death coming down at them. You know, they would just batter right through shields, slice through uh, leather armor like it was tissue paper, and you know, let's not even talk about the injuries to the end of the people. So, yeah, really, really scary, and that's only twice our size. So, you know, you talk about some of these larger things. I always thought that rhinoceros were big, but when I actually stood next to one uh, in a zoo, I realized that you know he could take out a house. A rampaging rhinoceros, he'd have oh, no yeah. trouble demolishing my entire house. He could brush against my car and roll it. In most games, you think about monsters as being these big, gigantic, you know, crazy, like powerful things. But in reality, you you could use animals as monsters, and you could really drive the effect home. I think at many games, I don't think they give enough credit to things like, say, a hippopotamus, which are exceptionally aggressive and have killed more people in Africa than crocodiles. Or lions. Or lions, right. Mm-hmm. And when you watch videos of these things, they effortlessly pick people up and toss them around like rag dolls. Their blubber is so thick that alligators can't even get through it. So just imagine how tough you would have to be that an alligator couldn't hurt you. You know, that it would chomp down on you with all its might and wouldn't even hurt you. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe draw a little blood, but nothing that you would really consider something that would stop you or really, really slow you down. And that's what you're dealing with with, say, something like a hippopotamus. I mean, it's just they're, they're really vicious and huge by any standard. Right. So in a game like Fringeworthy, where you can go small, and, and, by, and talk about giant animals or just normal-sized animals that are just big, okay, up to things that are unbelievably big, you know, Cthulhu big, oh. Godzilla big, okay, then, you know, you need to form a lot of times ahead of time. You really need to sit down and start creating in your own mind comparisons of scale, 
so that you can give clues to your players, you know, as to how big this thing really is. I gave you an example before we started where I was playing John Ryer's scenario, which had this monolith in it where you went to the portal and in the distance you could see this obviously artificial structure sticking up over the trees. Now, you know, this was in the far north, so you could say, well, you know, the tree, those are, those aren't trees, those are bushes, right? No, they were trees, they were full-grown trees. You started walking toward this structure, and two days later, you get there. So that's one of the clues that tells you how big this thing is. It was two miles high. It was uh, essentially at the top of it, you were having, you'd have trouble breathing. You know, a mile was 5,000 feet, uh, approximately. A 50-story building is 500. And that's really about the, the top of most of the skyscrapers is around 50 stories. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about something 10 times, the, uh, a mile is 10 times the size of the biggest skyscraper, and this is twice that. So we're talking 20 times the size of the biggest skyscraper. I mean, it is a mountain. It is an artificial mountain. And so... When you see that, you walk up to it and you're like, okay, am I supposed to climb this now? It's going to take me a long time to climb this thing. Do I have the right equipment? Or you have to look for another solution. Uh, you may be an aerial solution. Getting to the top of that thing, well, planes can go up two miles, but landing on top of something like that, maybe, maybe not. You know, if you're, you're going to have to think about getting something like a, a, a climbing, uh, well, not a climbing vehicle, but a vehicle that can fly. To, to do this, probably, because otherwise it just would, as you say, it, it would take a while to climb such a structure. There's a story called Class 6 Climb, and it involves uh, climbing a tree that is the size of what we're talking about here. They're climbing through the, uh, the cracks in the bark, and it's like crevices in a mountain. Hmm. It takes them two weeks, I think, to climb to the top of this tree. And the natives consider this tree to be their god. I can imagine why they would. I saw something that big, you know, standing all by itself. Well, oh, sure. If it, sure. If the tree is not itself divine, it's obviously evidence of the divine. <laughs> and is it, is it the only tree around that size? Well, I think it was the only tree that was anywhere near that size. I mean, there were other right. trees that were big, but this one was like unbelievably big. Right. And the natives considered it to be their god, and they worshipped it. And for them to climb the tree was an act of – was a religious act. It was an, a pilgrimage. And, right. and taking these – well, I guess you'd call them uh, uh, safari people climbing up the tree. I mean, they literally would hunt for their food on animals that lived in the tree. Oh yeah, sure, of course. Right, you have whole ecosystems. Absolutely, you know, and they had different ecosystems at different heights because of the temperature differences and right. the amount of light and everything else. So, as I said, it literally was a miniature world. Absolutely. So you you could even you could right absolutely have different climates. Right. Because you would have moss growths at different levels that would be yeah you know, would be be different. Hell, you could you could have different trees growing off of that tree. You know what I mean? You could have bushes literally growing in the, the dirt that would accumulate between those crevices. Right. And and that was the case. There was some smaller vegetation that was parasitically attached to it. Huh. Uh, so in this case, when you talk about this tree being big, it's really big. 
and a whole different situation arises there. You know, most of the time when you talk about big trees, then you're talking about, you know, a whole forest and what the ecosystem of the forest was like. But as you said, Blake, you know, here you have, an, you have a, a tree that has multiple ecosystems in itself. Right. And then to give another uh, sense of scale, the World Trade Center in New York was roughly uh, 1,400 feet high. And it towered over everything else in New York City by far. So, you know, 1,400 feet, that's a quarter of a mile. So, like you were talking about that monolith that was two miles high. That's just unbelievably huge. Right. It, it, it was a mountain, essentially. Right. right. And it was hollow on the inside. I modified John's adventure to continue on after finding the monolith because his published adventure didn't include anything after just finding it. Uh, and what happened was is that they found that the inside was hollow and there actually was a gigantic structure inside the purpose of this whole thing was it was a gigantic beam projector whose job was to stimulate the sun to produce more energy because this world had as a natural part of the solar process had fallen into an ice age and so some time ago a thousand two thousand three thousand years somebody's project was to build this device on this world for the purpose of turning itself on and heating up you know the sun uh, stimulating its its internal fires bringing the, the the planet out of its winter but of course the to Mellor Mellorn war happened and the project was never finished they it was all ready but nobody ever turned it on so that was what the players got to do they actually got to turn it on and when that happened this thing turns actually ro- lifts up somewhat and rotates and this mountain becomes this, the barrel of a beam weapon and fires off through the atmosphere at the sun and proceeds to you know do its job hmm. you can just imagine what it would have been like outside when that happened this mountain rising up out of the earth things that had accumulated on the outside of this thing, possibly parts of the outside that had uh, gone rotten and and decayed. And when this thing starts turning and orienting itself toward its target, parts of it are falling now from two miles up, down, crashing onto the ground, smashing whole trees, you know, the rumbling, the the, the crackling. And then when the energy beam weapon goes off, well, you know, we never even talked about what that was like. So, because they were on the inside, they didn't have to experience that. They were in the control room watching it go off. But you can imagine that there was a shock wave that that probably knocked down all the trees in maybe fifty miles around, right? Or not, depending upon if you just wanted to be this beam, containment beam weapon. So it may be a crackled and stuff like that, but it didn't actually cause a shock wave. I had a presser beam come out of it because it was kind of like a cleaning device so that it would push everything out of it, which was good because they had actually landed inside of the barrel of this thing and to get inside of it. And so it actually shoved their air vehicle out and down onto the ground rather than it being destroyed by this beam weapon and them trapped inside there. Right. It, it was good for them. They, they liked that. But uh, so this was essentially the size of a gigantic spaceship. And it was just a, a project. It was a simple project done by the Tamellerns uh, or one of the people of the Commonwealth for the purpose of helping this world back out of an ice age. Right. From the standpoint of, of the Tamellerns, 
it was no big deal. Hmm. Yeah, they probably even they could have just even grown it. There are different worlds involved in the Commonwealth. Some of them are not all the same super, super tech level of the Tamalers. Obviously, they were at some kind of super tech level because building devices and structures that can do what this thing did, we're talking about a huge engineering feat and something that makes it move, something to hold it together so when it rotates, it doesn't just snap off. Right. You know, something, something that's so enduring that it can sit there for, for a thousand years and still work. Right. You know, that's we're talking some major league mature technology. <laughs> but it still isn't the same as the kind of technology that the Tamelerns can do when they really put their minds to it. Right. This was really just kind of a little side project for somebody. A side project. <laughs> it wasn't like the big system. No, no, no. Or, or again, even, even one gate would be more science than it took to build something like that. Right, and we know that because we know that a gate, a single portal, uses the energy of two black holes and a neutron star. Right, exactly. Okay, well, you know, and and we know that a black hole is, isn't it like four or is that eight solar masses before it's considered stable? Uh, hmm, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, it's something like that. Something so, like that, yeah, it's, I think it's like four, four solar masses. So eight plus... A neutron star, which is another one, just collapsed. So we're talking nine suns worth of mass all and energy all scrunched down and, and, and bound to create this little 25-foot or 50-foot portal that we go through without ever worrying about it being safe or not. Right. <laughs> they, they were able to handle big amounts of energy without any real trouble. You know, talk about scale. I mean, that, that's a scale on, on a level that most people can't even begin to imagine. I mean, I know I can't. I mean, I can imagine in of – I understand the numbers involved, but I can't really practically imagine something that size. We, You know, they squeeze it down into a portal. And then you have the platforms and the pathways, which literally have – basically have planets squashed down into them. These humongous scales – that are squashed down into, you know, these the smaller uh, appearance-wise. We're hiding the scale when you go on the fringe pass. Right. So these yeah. these numbers are humongous numbers. You know, things with the with exp, you know, with with big exponents on them. But there actually is a place on the fringe pass where you can actually experience that kind of scale, and that is if you go up. On the outside, in the zero gravity area, mm-hmm. and in, to do this, you're going to have to use some kind of a vehicle, okay? Because you go up, you go up until you run out of atmosphere, and you keep on going, and you keep on going, and you keep on going, and eventually, unless you're like firing off some kind of a rocket, I mean, like Saturn V type of rocket. It wouldn't have to be that big because you're outside in zero G. So, But the point is is that you're traveling at a great deal of speed, and then you have to flip over and slow down because eventually you're going to come up on the bottom side of the platform. But it's going to take a long time for this to happen, and by the time you do it, you're not going to be able to see the other side of the platform. Right. So you'll be going up and up and up. It will have vanished into the, in, into the distance. 
the amount of light on the platform is only equivalent to twilight. Right. So that's not much light at all. So there's nothing there when you look up to see the bottom side of the platform. You could, theoretically, with a big enough telescope, you might be able to. I'm not sure. You know, may, there might be just too much distortion as far as um, you know, the, 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 the curvature of, of pseudospace in the fringe pass. I don't know. But the point is, is that you go and you try to get to the bottom – it's going to take you a while to do it. You're going to have to bring a lot of uh, your own oxygen, possibly food. You might it might take. I don't think it would take more than a day if you had some kind of real vehicle to go there with. It's a good distance up there. I, I, we we never explained how far it is because we didn't think it was important to do it. But you know, it's at least a couple hundred miles. So theoretically, this is something I've always wondered, and this this is just slightly off topic, but theoretically. If you wanted to set up, say, an ambush for somebody, could you wait on the other side and just flip around? Oh, yeah. I mean, are you talking about underneath the platform? Yeah. Could you wait underneath the platform? Oh, yeah. It, it's got some gravity. Sure. It's got some air. Sound travels, right? Sure it does, but it, but not very well because the air energy interface out on 92 right. feet, it doesn't transmit uh, any uh, sound right. across it. And then the, the metal of the fringe pads itself doesn't respond to explosions or much of anything. So everything is absorbing right. sound. So it's very quiet. But you could have like a small tripwire or some kind of signaling device as long as it wasn't electronic, some kind of mechanical triggering, tri uh, triggering device. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Because that's something we never talked about, defending the fringe pads. You could defend it from underneath and then somebody comes onto it and you have a bunch of guys roll up around the other side. But mm -hmm. it, the reason why I bring that up is that – if, for example, you wanted to have some kind of device made up to where you could, when you get onto a pathway, or, or, or a platform rather, you know, you could look up and see the bottom of it to make sure nobody's under hiding underneath of it. Well, there's no reason why you can't just use a, a large mirror and check underneath the the plat, you know, the pathway, right. but it's only you're only gonna be able to see a certain distance. That's a that's a road that is. 47 miles long. Right, I was just thinking that the, the platforms, I can't imagine somebody hanging out on a pathway, right. but I, I guess they could. Yeah, they could. I mean, especially now that they're uh, 43 yeah. feet across, you know, it'd be relatively easy for you to get in the middle and hide is uh, if you use any kind of camouflage to match the color of the front of the pathway. And, you know, you could be anywhere along that pathway and just jump out and, and attack somebody uh, put a trap up there and hide back under there, and people are just zipping along, thinking there's nothing on the road, nothing to worry about. Pow! They run right into uh, a set of tire busters or something like that. You, you can't even see the end of the fringe path uh, from one end to the other unless you've got somebody down there right. putting off a heck of a beacon. Because it's, as I say, it's 50, 47 miles long. That's, you know, and it's dim. There's no light. So when you go traveling along there, it's yeah. It just kind of everything vanishes mm -hmm. to a vanishing point. And well, the, the best example I can give of it is when the Contiki explorers, where they rode the raft from South America mm -hmm. over to the Polynesias, they said that you know they were being blown along by the wind because they had a sail. But the waves were going up and down and sliding through their raft, and which was all supposed to happen. But they got this really strange sensation that they were literally in the center of a round piece of ocean <laughs> that never changed.
The stars never substantially changed. So sometimes they see clouds going across it, but when they looked around, it was always the same sea. They were always in the middle of it. There was nothing in the distance to give any kind of a boundary except normal horizon. So they were in the center of this, lo- hmm. essentially a pocket stop. And day after day and month after, and they literally had this strange feeling that they weren't going anywhere. They they had to measure it. They would like draw pieces of paper over the side and they would see how long it took to move past the end of the ship. And they would calculate their speed and then therefore, you know, calculate how fast they were moving and, and how far they were moving and get a rough estimate. And they also had proper transit type devices you know to, to do good things but um but from the standpoint of the person they just felt like they were they were not moving at all they just felt like they were sitting in, in the middle of this rocketing you know rocking wave of, of, of ocean and, and what seemed like an interminable period of time and it was completely restful of course you know <laughs> they had no worries uh, except like running into a, a gigantic storm that could kill them oh yeah other than that (laughs) if they looked up in the sky and it was clear then they just you know it was just fine and even when they did have storms they were still fine it was just now the the landscape was this big foaming scary roller thing that and they had this and they were in the middle of that well that's that's another thing that, that should be mentioned is that um when you're when you're traveling on the pathways, that's what it would seem like once you get a little ways down the road. You can't see in front of you. You can't see to the end in front of you. You can't see to the end behind you. It all looks the same. So, especially the first time, you know, you have players get on the pathways, you know, you could actually have them take some kind of I don't know, maybe even I don't know what kind of check you would make. I know if you if you were playing if you were doing the Savage Worlds version. Uh, which is coming, you know, it could be some kind of spirit check or something to, to keep people from freaking out. You know, it's like, well, I don't know where we are. Did we, did we go far enough? Uh, you know, it just seems like we're not going anywhere. You know, that people might have, uh, might get freaked out. Is, is this road ever going to end? Right. And even if they know, if you've never been scuba diving before, I've been scuba diving a couple times and, you know, I don't go like on a regular basis. It's usually like once every so many years Every time I get in there, I get freaked out, even though I know what to expect, because you're just in this, such a foreign environment. So if you're on the pathway, you've got nothing but space around you. You've got this this 47-foot-wide road that you're driving down. You can't see either end of it at, at a certain point, not too far in either. It could get very freaky. That 50-foot ring is very thin, and it vanishes. It falls in amongst the stars that are all around you that right. are moving. Right. <laughs> and changing colors. So it's, yeah. And uh, a couple of things you can do to help make that a little better to, is fringe weather. Because a lot of people think that the fringe paths are, once they get used to it, it says, oh, yeah, it's stag. I just have to drive real fast. And then they run into fringe weather. And then all of a sudden they go into something that starts crackling balls of fire around them or it starts raining and it, and it follows them. You know, because some of these uh, fringe storms move 30, 40 miles an hour. And you can literally be chased down the pathway by one of these storms, it crackling and moaning behind you, and you're just hoping to get to the to the portal <laughs> and, and dodge off to the right, So it, and hopefully it won't follow right. you. And there's no reason why they can't have lightning. And There's all kinds of weird fringe storms. I mean, there's there's runs of frogs and stuff. Right. And isn't there like, a, like so, side storms and stuff, too? 
there's size storms with all kinds of crackling energy, which which really mess with you because a lot of the feelings and the, and the sensations and the visuals that you get from the size storm aren't of human beings. Right. For a short period of time, it seems like something else takes over your mind, but it's it's all passive. It's it's just something you know. It's it's like listening to crashing music and strange things, but it's it doesn't actually control you like like a pers- purposeful thing. You just have to ride it out until it's right. done. Right, and in the same vein, you know, traveling through space. If you if you do any of the you know space exploration stuff, you know, traveling in space is even worse. The distance between Earth and Mars is unbelievably long. It's the, I think it's the second closest planet to us. I think Venus is closer, but it's still really, really far away. It takes, was it months to get there? Like years even? Well, it depends on how fast you're moving. Depends on what you're using as your propulsive source. How big the ship is that you're taking along with you, you know, to live in. But the point of the matter is, is you're not seeing anything in between. You know, you're, you're just free floating in space for the most part. You know, your your view does not change right. very much for a very long time. Incrementally, the Earth will get smaller and smaller behind you. Then it'll become just a small blue light for like a really long time. It'll be like a star, a blue star. And you'll be heading towards a red star. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then so finally the red star starts getting a little bit bigger and you actually start seeing stuff. But and- you'll, you'll literally look out the window and it won't seem like you're moving at all. Right. Yeah. Even though you're moving thousands of miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And that is danger because we think about motion. We think about things that we can control and, and that we can adjust quickly. When you're moving thousands of miles an hour, unless you're using some kind of super tech, you've got to think ahead as to when you want to slow down. Mm-hmm. If you were in a vehicle, for example, that had constant acceleration, you better know what your middle point is when you need to flip it around and start decelerating the other way. Otherwise, you'll blow right past your destination you know, in, in practically a blink in the eye. Right. And that's another so, uh, a thought on scale. You know, you know, there's fast and then there's fast. You think, um, you know, on, on Earth, what, 100 miles an hour is pretty fast. Right. But we have vehicles that will go 700 miles an hour, which is ludicrously fast, you know, within an atmosphere on the ground. And then mm-hmm. you have jets that will do, you know, was it Mach 2, Mach 3 is the highest or what is it? Without using like a rocket plane, I think they go like maybe four. So, okay. So, you know, and then that's like really fast. But then if you – Well, it, Mach 1 is about 600 miles an hour. Roughly, so we're talking yeah. 2,400 miles an hour. And then that's nothing compared to any rocket or space shuttle or whatever who leaves the atmosphere because they're doing about 25,000 miles an hour by the time they reach, you know, orbit. Right. Seven miles a, a, a second. A second. Yeah. yeah. Miles a second. So then – you know, then there's that. And then once you get into space, you know, to, to travel between planets. You have to go even faster. You have to either go way faster. The, the scales just jump up like look unbelievably. So, and, and that's why there's a lot of hand waving. You know, we're, see, we're not trying to help you listeners hand wave this away. We're not, we're saying just the opposite. So you need to let your players know how big this is, how fast they're going. You have to figure out ways of doing this. And the reason is, is because they get feeling of importance. They get a feeling of wow and awesomeness when they realize they're doing something that really is 
way outside their experience that is truly something extraordinary. So if they went into a, a, a world where they had space flight and they could travel between planets in a couple of days, well, then you'd want to get somehow get them in saying yes, but then we have these super ships that can go even faster and then and watch one of these things blasting off and leaving all the other ships sitting still. You know, like in Star Trek, they show all the ships all there in space, and then all of a sudden, boom, one will be gone. And then, boom, next one will be gone, 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 you know, because they had jumped into enormous speed. And were in, and, and they even, a lot of the times they even had like a thunderclap sound when this happened, which, of course, you know, you can't have in space. But it's, uh, but it's just to help the viewer understand the enormous magnitude of what just happened, of how fast they were going. So, you know, it's really important that you grab onto this and, and try it because this is a science fiction game. And mostly, you know, you can have fantasy. And, of course, in fantasy, there's lots of good reasons to go for this gigantic scale, too. But in a science fiction game, part of it is to get this across, that you're doing things that are tremendous, that are gigantic, that are Let's see what are what, what are words I can come up with, you know, that are ginormous. Ginormous, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be technical. Yeah. yeah. We want to thank you for listening to us and hopefully we got you some, some great ideas and we're gonna be looking to give you even more. But until then, this is Bruce Shepherd from Atlanta saying remember there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words.